Hey, I'm Jason Gray. Hey, this is Sarah Gross. Hey, I'm Andrew Osinga. Hi, this is Michael Carr. Hey, this is Andrew Peterson, and you're listening to Voices in My Head. And this is me, so let's have some exciting music. Who is me, you ask? Well, me is Rick Lee James, and this is my podcast, Voices in My Head. We've got a great show for you this week, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. I am Rick Lee James, your host as always, and here today with me is my good friend and special guest, Brandon Sipes. Hello. And he looks like he's actually advertising for a coffee company because he just lifted up his cup and held it up. But Cheers. But the fact that this is audio means nothing to you, and if I didn't tell you, you wouldn't have seen it. So I won't even say the name of the coffee because I can't even see it anyway. Um, but it's good to to be here. We're actually meeting in my office today as opposed to my recording studio because it's wintertime here in Ohio, and it's cold in the basement, and my studio is full of boxes of CDs from my new album, which is going to be releasing in March. And um, if you have not pre-ordered that yet, by the way, just a quick plug, you can go to rickleyjames.bandcamp.com. You can pre-order the album, and when you pre-order it, you get three of the tracks instantly. It comes out on St. Patrick's Day on March 17th, and as it turns out, it looks like I will be in the Chicago area on the day of release. Um, I'll be on the Under the Radar radio show up in Chicago, and it looks like I also will be on a a couple other things in local media there as far as radio and podcast, and I also will, just for fun, be going to the C2E2 Entertainment Convention while I'm up there with Matt and Ben from the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast, who you guys know, who have been listening. Um, I want to apologize because it's been maybe five weeks since I put out a podcast. It's been the holidays. I have been sick. I literally, for a week and a half or so, had no voice. Uh, So I was like typing my communication to my family on an iPad and letting the voice from the iPad talk to my wife for me because I had no voice to speak. It was terrible. But I'm back now, hoping to do this on a much more regular basis. That being said, maybe I'll see you in another six weeks, but uh, <laughs> here we are today with uh, the, the reason we actually came. Brandon Sipes is here. He works for Nazarene, Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, and um, he's also a good friend of mine. He plays drums here at church, has played drums in with me at numerous locations over the years. Um, he's a, a great musician. He's a real thinker. Um, he did his master's work at Xavier University, and um, I, I wanted to ask him to come and be a part of the podcast today because he's also in our class here on Sunday mornings at church, and we almost have more a facilitator than a teacher because um, our teacher will start with a topic and it seems like everybody likes to talk and we just kind of take off and go different directions. But it became very apparent this week as we were having our discussion on Sunday morning that there is a real problem, not just outside the church, um, which maybe we could pretend it's just outside the church. Uh, and, And I guess this is no secret to anybody, but the problem of fear. So we're going to be talking about the problem of fear and a culture of fear and what that means. Um, turns out uh, one of the sources that we're going to be using today, Brandon actually used in uh, in his work, uh, working on his uh, master's while he was at Xavier University. And so I'm really excited to have him here today. But uh, first of all, welcome to Voices in My Head. Thanks, Brandon. Rick. And as we begin, tell everybody what it is you do for Nazarene Compassionate Ministries and and any other background you'd like to tell. You've been on the show before, and and a lot of people, uh, my mother included, by the way, uh, (laughs) was super excited to hear you and and has asked numerous times if you could— so this is for mom who just had Good. who just had cancer surgery. This is for her having Brandon back on the show, but uh, she's always said how interesting you are, and she enjoyed the last time you were on the show. I have to agree. So take it away and tell us about who you are. Yeah. So um, I think the last time I was on the show, most of our time was spent talking about peace building and mediation, which is. Uh, realm that I was very active in for about five or six years. My, actually, my graduate work was in theology of reconciliation, peace-building theology, and worked as a mediator in the Middle East uh, and North Africa and a few other areas and different conflicts for about five or six years. Uh, 
transitioned out of that a little bit and worked with our juvenile justice system uh, for about 18 months before I was called by Nazarene Compassionate Ministries to interview with them. I was not looking for a position, um, was not looking to work for the Nazarene church or denomination, but a friend of mine suggested that I apply for a position to coordinate some mentoring programs. It could almost be said you were, you were really not looking to work with the Nazarene <laughs> I really, church. I said that intentionally. I really did not imagine myself working for the Nazarene church, even though my wife is. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so the I was hired because we got a grant to do um, to coordinate uh, mentoring programs across the United States. Nazarene Church has uh, more than a hundred, almost 150 compassionate ministry centers around the country, and at many of them we have mentoring programs. And we had selected five of those to be the recipients of this grant, where we were going to build up their grant programming, basically, and do some more training for mentors and. Um, essentially, you know, work more closely with mentors and in the lives of kids at risk youth, essentially. Uh, and while they were interviewing me for that position, they said, you know, that mentoring role is going to be about half of your time. So what would you like to do with the other half of your time while you're working with us? And I, I felt like that was a really good opportunity, which is essentially the reason that I took the job. Uh, and I told them at the time, um, I'd like to be doing peace building again. Uh, it's sad to me. Um, I, I lament the fact that our church is not more engaged as an agent of reconciliation around the world. And I would like us to um, start working more with the juvenile justice population. I, I really love um, I love incarcerated youth. <laughs> I love youth who um, are court-involved and are struggling through that and struggling with families that... Um, that sometimes don't help them to get out of that system very often. And so what I said when I was interviewed was if our denomination is known a decade from now as being involved in juvenile justice reform, I, I would really love that. So they said, those both sound great. Come on board. And I did uh, in March of this last year and almost immediately was working on conflict projects and the mentoring work and uh, a few other different areas of work here and there, just sort of helping, you know, doing some grant writing things. And then in October, I was asked to help coordinate our denomination's response to the current refugee migration crisis. So um, that's what I've been spending a lot of my time on the last three or four months is the the refugee crisis that's currently sort of taken over the, not taken over the news, but, um, but people have become more aware of. Right. Well, and it, I think it did for a while. It was, I don't know, unfortunately, those things kind of were the flavor of the week, and then you moved to something else, and David Bowie passed away, and right. we kind of forgot about it. And Alan Rickman. And Alan Rickman, and uh, some other people. Wow, we lost some really good ones yeah. in this past uh, couple weeks here, but... Um, well, it's it's that specifically your work with refugees that is interesting to me right now, because it seems like the conversation and and we had this come up uh, not too long ago when when Dr. Brueggemann was on the show, and he was talking about his German roots mm -hmm. and how when he was a child, um, he he wishes that he would have learned German because he went and spent some time there later on, but in America during the time of around World War II, you did not learn German, right. and uh, we were talking about the irony that. Uh, people who at that time were escaping Germany, you know, as refugees. Now we have a situation where people are fleeing to Germany. Right. Um, and, and just different parts of the world where people are, um, they're without a place to stay, without homes. And, and um, we don't always consider how serious that is when we're sitting at home. I, I, I almost liken it to the water crisis because we have so much of it. We easily can, you know, we're here at this church, which I don't know how many faucets are in this church, but we easily yeah. could just run over, turn on a faucet and let it run all night and not any of us think anything about it. Right. I mean, half of them work, but the half that do work <laughs> right. are still plenty. <laughs> half of right. the faucets that do work <laughs> right. are still plenty. Um, and yet we don't realize around the world that people are, are literally just dying in masses because of a lack of water. Uh, so this crisis of actually not having a home, not having a place to stay. Uh, at Christmas time, we were talking about the idea that um, you know Mary and Joseph being refugees among a people who were a, a nation that was called as a part of a census to go to a place that was not their home; it was right. their ancestry. But you can imagine getting to this area by mandate um, where you are 
forced to be in a place where it, it wasn't just Mary and Joseph who didn't have a place to stay. It was likely the better part of a nation that didn't yeah. have a place to stay. And you see scenes in the news right now of these, you know, tents with refugees in them. Um, I wouldn't know the statistics, but we talked about how imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, giving birth in the midst of probably like a refugee camp, right. you know, or a place without any real shelter or maybe cold cobblestone or wherever it is that you're at. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination because you can, can see this happening now. I wonder how many women today are in that same situation. Right. They're in refugee camps. They're, they're literally, if, if even this, under a tent somewhere, probably mm -hmm. giving birth right now because they don't have a home. Right. Um, we talked about water. Obviously, that's an issue anytime you're a place where it's not prevalent. There's so many things that we don't think about. I mean, we're here in the dead of winter. We all have, even even the most poor of us probably have some place, you yeah. know, to go. Friends, family, somewhere to be. And these people just don't. So in that class, uh, this past weekend, we were talking. And it became such a... Uh, it just became so real how, uh, to me what a problem fear is even among the church because the conversation we were talking about the prophets mm -hmm. and the conversation turned somehow to the idea of being afraid i don't remember do you remember what kind of got us in that direction i don't either it might pop in my head but i i can't remember what the initial i think i was too distracted by the soapbox that I got on and yeah. the amount of time that I unfortunately <laughs> sucked up out of the class. Which happens every week. We, yeah. somebody, somebody, if it's not you, it's somebody sucks yeah. up a good amount of time. But one, but one of our people, and I, I certainly wouldn't say names, and I don't want to give too many specifics, but one of our people talked about how terrified they were um, of, and, and it was, and it really, I don't think terrified is too strong of a word, mm -hmm. like to just go into a store um, here in America um, and, and at this time, you know, if uh, you're reading the news or anything at all, obviously gun control's an issue because everywhere it seems like there's a shooting every day someplace and it seems like America is one of the most dangerous places in the world right now. Yeah. So it's, it's not completely unfounded, I guess, right. uh, on some level. And yet most of us still are not experiencing, you know, ultimate terror when we walk into Target to go buy a T-shirt or something, yeah. you know. Um and, and so that, that idea was conveyed by this person that they're really having a problem with fear of it didn't, they were in the parking lot and didn't even want to leave her husband to go in the store without him. Right. He, he was getting something from the car and it was just like this terrorizing fear. That has to come from someplace, right. you know, there's, there's a story that we as Christians are listening to that maybe we shouldn't be giving as much credence to as we are. Yeah. And and we're in the midst of this study called The Story right now where we're looking at the Bible and they're talking about the difference between the upper story and the lower story. And most of us are so preoccupied with the lower story, and that's actually not too bad of a way of, of looking at yeah. kind of ideas. Um, so give me your, your initial thoughts just now that you've had like a week just to think about, because after she vocalized this, it was obvious she wasn't the only one that mm -hmm. was feeling this. It seemed like other people in the room started kind of chiming in. I feel that too. Right. I, you know, and it, it sort of was like, like, wow, are people really that scared of everything? You yeah. know? And well, I, I, I was really impacted by that conversation in part because, you know, I'm, I'm in this process right now where I'm, I'm working on this refugee issue and I, I recognize fully the, the, the attitude and the atmosphere in the U.S. toward that population group. Mm -hmm. You know, if there were refugees maybe from another region of the world, you know, it might be a little different. But, mm -hmm. but largely the migration that we're seeing now is coming out of North Africa and the Middle East and, um, you know, countries like Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, um, Eritrea, Ethiopia, you know, these Somalia, these countries where um, a lot of us see um, terrorism, you know, on the rise. And... Um, you know, if the, so I, you know, I hear these conversations and I, I know that a lot of my work here in the U.S. around the refugee issue is going to be based then on how do we break down the stereotypes that we have of who those folks are. Mm -hmm. 
um, and overcome our fear about those people. And so, so that's one reason I was really impacted by that conversation what Sunday do you morning. Mean, those people. Yeah, those no, people. See, um, <laughs> and the, the second reason is I, I appreciated when she was st- sharing her story about sort of being frozen in the parking lot and not being able to walk with her daughter to into the store while her husband got their um, uh, stroller out of the car. Um, I, I appreciated that actually her concern was partly for herself, but actually more about her daughter, um, who was, they have two children and their daughter's older, um, eight years old. And, uh, her concern was also that, what am I doing to my daughter? What am I passing on to my daughter? I Mm -hmm. I recognize that a lot of my anxieties are unfounded. Mm -hmm. And so what am I passing on to her? And I, I, in preparation uh, for this, um, conversation today, I did go back to read a paper that I had written while I was doing my graduate work uh, because this conversa- the idea of having this conversation reminded me that I had even written it. I had forgotten, but the, the topic of the paper was essentially why isn't the evangelical church in the U.S. more active in social justice endeavors, w- mm-hmm. whether that's refugee assistance or water issues mm-hmm. around the world or hunger or uh, just a variety of issues, juvenile justice. And I gave several reasons, um, but one of the reasons that I gave uh, nine years ago when I wrote this paper was the culture of fear in the U.S., Mm -hmm. Um, and this was a few years after 9-11, you know, so not too long after that, um, but, you know, that that was still there, and I remember writing about a few things in there, and one example that I had totally forgotten about until I read this paper, um, right around the time I was writing that paper, there was a story um, that was all over the news. And I, I don't, I didn't state, uh, I didn't uh, tell what state it was from in the paper, so I don't remember. But I feel like it was out in the Pacific Northwest somewhere, Oregon or Washington State or something like that, where uh, a Boy Scout had gotten lost um, and either separated from his troop or away from his family, whoever he was out with, he had gotten lost. And for days and days and days, these searchers were out looking for him, just you know, calling out his name and this whole giant group of people going up and down these mountains looking for him and they found him I think after like a week or a, I mean it was many days later and he was very dehydrated they said he was he was very not close to death but he was in really bad shape and if they hadn't found him within the next day or two you know it's probably exposure he was you know he was going to die from exposure and once they found him um, and and started talking to him and he was getting better you know in the hospital or whatever they found out that he had been hiding from them hmm because he had been taught very strongly to avoid strangers. Wow. So this boy is lost in the wilderness, and every time he hears someone's voice calling out for him, he goes and hides because he was taught to be afraid, so afraid of strangers that even when he's close to death, you avoid mm. um, the help that's coming for you. Mm. And I, I'd totally forgotten about that story and completely forgotten about like the impact that it had on me when I read that story. And my first encounter with it was not someone sharing that story for a particular reason or in a paper or whatever. It was me seeing the story on the news and thinking how absurd it was that, mm-hmm. that this child had been taught fear at such a level or had ingrained fear at such a level that he would, as hungry and thirsty and lonely and scared as he was, still avoid the stranger, the unknown, mm-hmm. so that, you know, because I, I don't know if he'd been taught that or he just had some paralyzing fear, but... So all of that kind of came back to me today when I was thinking about this uh, Sunday school conversation. Well, I think generally that's learned, too. I think you're right. You told me that story a while back, and I had completely forgotten about it. Um, That's a a great example for sure. Um, And yet, you know, what bothers me about this idea of fear, and I want to get into Barry Glassner's book here in just a minute, but I was talking with Steve early, our teacher, this morning. We had breakfast, and... um, (laughs) And I, I was saying, you know, it's it's interesting because as Christians, I don't know, it just shows how uninformed we are by our own story, I guess, and how much that we allow the other story of, of fear and the other story that culture is telling us to be the story we listen to. Um, because I was saying to Steve today, I said, I don't think you find in the Bible anywhere that God calls somebody that's safe. Like, because right. like, remember all those stories where God said, go somewhere safe and easy and, <laughs> and your family will be protected right. and, and it'll be warm and you'll have water and you'll have everything. You I need. keep waiting on God to call me to Paris, <laughs> but it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> well, Paris isn't so safe. Uh, I had a bomb. It's in, true. You know? I know. Um, 
it's it's just it's kind of interesting to me that we're we're so uninformed about that and when we think of the places that God does call us to I I can't think of any time God says go to the safe place right. you know it's almost always like when when we were talking about the prophets so we were talking about Elijah and the prophets of of Baal and you know Elijah ends up going on the run even though he uh, already done these amazing works in the name of God and yet his life was being threatened um, and, you know, usually the people we see in Scripture that are called by God don't come to a well, a, a very good end. Right. <laughs> you know? right. um, they're often speaking truth to power, and power doesn't like that. Right. Um, and, and so as, it just... As we celebrate Martin Luther King Day this weekend. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, this is. Uh, and, and that's a very significant... And, um, and, and again, we, we were talking about the prophets in Sunday school and, and uh, you know, as Dr. Brueggemann reminded us on the podcast a few weeks ago, the idea that um, the, 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 the work of a prophet is to, you know, help us imagine the world as though God is in charge of it. Right. And that takes quite an act of imagination yeah. when we just look at what our world often looks like. Yeah. And so um, it, it just occurred to me that maybe we are not doing such a good job of, of imagining our story in through the eyes of God and and we're doing a lot better job just allowing the story to be narrated for us mm-hmm. by somebody else who's not even a part of that story right. or, or or doesn't want to be a part of that story so I wanted to talk about Glasner's book and I had no idea when I told you earlier I, I wanted to use his book as sort of a, a jump jumping on or jumping off point whichever applies here um, but in in 2000, Barry Glasner wrote a book, and and you wrote about it in your in your paper. And the book was called the Cu- the Culture of Fear, and then he updated it in 2010, and the title got a lot longer. Right. And it was called the Culture of Fear: Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things: Crime, Drugs, Minorities, Teen Moms, Killer Kids, Mutant Microbes, Plane mm-hmm. Crashes, Road Rage, and so much more, uh, which is. <laughs> Maybe the most fantastic title I've ever heard for a book. Um, but in that book, um, he makes these these four different premises that I'll, I'll say quickly, and then maybe we can just kind of break them down and talk about the way that we are kind of held captive by these things as a society. Um, the four premises being the first one, um, he says that mass media creates panics and hysterias from a few isolated incidents. Uh, the second thing is anecdotal evidence takes the place of hard scientific proof. The third thing he says is the experts uh, that the media trots out uh, uh, to make comments really don't have the credentials to be considered an expert. And the fourth thing, that the fourth premise of his book is entire categories of people are christened as innately dangerous, uh, like the aforementioned teen moms and young black men. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think he's he's spot on in all four of those things. Let's let's start with the first one and just kind of see where our conversation takes us. But his first premise is that mass media creates panics and hysteria from a few isolated incidents. So I, I guess we should first say it's not that there are not incidents right. that are happening because there are things that are happening, obviously. Um, but speak to that a little bit, the idea that, that we're creating hysteria and panics from a few isolated incidents. Right. Well, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know that anybody could look at the way media operates today and is consumed by us today and and not say that there's at least some level of truth to that period you know i i guess what i'm saying is well there has to be some level of truth or it's not right going to ring true at all you right. know well what i mean is like i don't i don't know that anybody could look at his statement that mass media creates panic out of isolated incidents and say no that doesn't happen oh, i right. don't know how you deny that um right. I mean, I guess you could, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, you can see a real shift, and I and I wrote about this in the paper, too, that you can see a real shift when news stations started going, you know, to the 24-hour format, and it seems mm-hmm. like there, there, aren't, there aren't news programs anymore that are seen as very legitimate mm-hmm. that are only an hour or two a night, 
Hmm. You know, so, um, you know, the, the nightly news on well, since John Stewart left the daily show. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Although tr- Trevor's doing a decent job. Um, so, so, you know, the, the CBS nightly news or the PBS news hour, whatever the names of those, I don't even know their names because mm. who watches them. Right? right. And the reason that people don't watch them is because they want the information right now. Mm-hmm. And there, I think there was a time for a few years where people cared whether that information was really accurate or not. Mm-hmm. But now it, it, it's almost like it doesn't matter. Mm. So you can go over the last year, let's take the San Bernardino shooting from before Christmas. Um, you can, if you were watching CNN while it was unfolding, it, it's amazing to see how many errors are put up in a row and how there's no apology later about how they were giving out wrong information. Right. And it's not just CNN, that's Fox News, that's, and even NPR, which is where I probably consume most of my media from, or most of my news from an American source, mm-hmm. even, I've started to notice, even in their written, I don't know about radio programming, but even in their written stories, as stories are developing, they'll go ahead and put stuff out there with a disclaimer that says, now we don't know how accurate this is. Right. That would never have happened 50 years ago. Hmm. You don't put out inaccurate information. Right. You just don't do it. Um, and, and so what happens is that if I'm only watching from one to one fifteen, and I catch 13 errors in a news mm-hmm. program, right. it doesn't matter if three days later, somebody says what I remember about it is what yeah. was told. Um, so, so first of all, I just, I, I think that the way that the news operates lends itself to inaccuracy mm-hmm. and because it lends itself to inaccuracy, it, it doesn't matter as much if, the frequency of something is blown out of proportion as well. Mm-hmm. So being able to look at an incident like the Paris attack or, for example, the Beirut attack, which was the night before that nobody covered mm. because right. those people don't live in Paris. Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, you, you'll ta- we'll take those two incidents and and pull out of that and then let it let those two incidents inform everything that we need to know about anybody that might be involved in that situation. Mm-hmm. So as soon as the news uh, incorrectly reported that one of the um, bombers and or one of the attackers in the Paris attack had a Syrian passport on him, um, then everything right. was about Syrian refugees. Right. We had to find that one that had something we could jump on. Right. And- so so the, there is a reality there with with the way that the news is currently operating that it's maybe i'm giving them too much leeway it's almost like i don't want to blame <laughs> blame the news because they're structured in such a way now that that this is what happened this is the natural yeah. result of the way that we're consuming our news yeah. and we're the ones that are asking for it yeah we're not the ones clamoring and saying no slow down give us better information yeah. We're asking for constant updates, whether it's yeah. through our Facebook feed or our Instagram or Twitter. Or There's the, a, do you remember, I, I don't even know if you know about this, you probably do, um, you're pretty savvy about most of these things, but there's a site, um, and maybe a couple sites out right now, that they're, uh, their kind of thing is that <laughs> they actually write stories that are false and they mm-hmm. make them look like real news stories right. and it, they call it a parody site right. but there's nothing humorous in it it's all so like yesterday somebody one of my friends on facebook posted this article about pat robertson saying david bowie wasn't really dead he had been kidnapped by demons right because I saw that. he had, was subjected right. to whatever and um and it's from one of those sites that, admittedly, if you read their site in small print, it's like is, these stories are not real. By the way, we right. take one statement. So, and I'm 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 no fan of Pat Robertson by any stretch of the imagination. But the the one thing in the article that they came out and said Pat Robertson had actually said was that he believes rock music can lead us to demon possession or right. something like that. Right. So that was the one true statement. But the rest of it was completely fabricated, and it was just playing off of David Bowie had just died, and they wanted a sensational story right. about, look what this you know right-wing conservative Christian right. guy said about David Bowie. Right. But it didn't, didn't matter that that wasn't true. It still got shared like crazy right. and probably the majority of people reading it are going well that's yeah. that's gospel truth now. right and that's a, that's you know another related problem with the way 
this is a human problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we want stories that fit our narrative, mm-hmm. right? You know, so I, I jokingly, before we started this podcast, I was making a joke about how at our Wednesday night church gathering, our pastor asked us if we had any favorite prophets. And I said, Amos, and he asked <laughs> me, why is he your favorite? And instead of saying, well, he talks about justice and blah, 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 I said, well, because he agrees with me. You know, So we <laughs> we like it when things fit our narrative and, and we'll we'll share a story right away without even reading it if mm-hmm. the headline matches what we believe. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how incredibly inaccurate it is. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you the number of, you know, my Facebook feed is really funny because I have, you know, my Middle Eastern friends and my <laughs> gay friends and my conservative Christian friends and my Democrat socialist friends and, you know, my Maoist friends, you know, so I have this really like <laughs> schizophrenic Facebook feed and, um, I think I have a couple you know, conservative Christian gay friends, and that's yeah, weird. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so um, so the, the feed is really interesting. I get stuff from all over the place, but I can't tell you the number of times I have wanted to, like, reach through the computer and, and you know. Stop sharing this. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, because it, the stuff is so wildly inaccurate, and I, I just, I ask people just, this is part of that whole slow down, yeah. you know, you've, you've shared something immediately upon seeing it like slow down and, and first think about this and then investigate this. And, you know, here and there I've called people out on it and said, you know, this isn't true. You should take a look here or there. And, but most of the time it's a, you know, that's a losing battle because, you know, as you said, and we'll probably, we'll get to this, but one of the reasons I know that's sometimes a losing battle is that the, it's not actually logic or rationality that, that you sometimes use to address those issues particularly if people are afraid. Hmm. Um, and maybe we can talk in a minute about whether or not that fear is legitimate and how you, how, or, how or whether you judge that fear. But you, you can't address fear with rationality hmm. often. Yeah. You know, you can, I can share some statistics about, you know, this percentage of these people will ever commit a crime. You know, the you know, the the microscopically small percentage yeah. of crimes that have ever been committed by people that are officially resettled in this country as refugees, yeah. it's 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 so far below the <laughs> normal population crime rate that you, you'd you be like, oh, those are the safest people around. But that kind of... But all it takes is one for right, somebody to and go, oh, they're all dangerous. Because yeah. that one is what ends up on the news, yeah. <laughs> as we're just talking right. about. That one is what ends up there, in part because it it does appeal to that narrative of the other being dangerous and and in part because it's the news and it's glossy and has yeah. to make money for the network and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. um, so a lot of times the logic and rationale approach isn't helpful when people, and this isn't a judgment. Mm-hmm. Like I, it's, I think it's just a reality that you can't always address a person's fear of something by saying, well, if you look at this and this mm-hmm. and this, and if you go to Wikipedia, it, it just doesn't yeah. always work that way. Yeah. Well, and, and this kind of, le- I mean, all these points kind of run together. So, you know, the anecdotal evidence takes the place of hard scientific right. proof. Um, and, and we're talking about misinformation and things. I, I told you, I just saw this really good movie spotlight, which is about the, the scandal of Catholic priests that had abused children. And, um, and that, that actually was they were finding out was hundreds of cases that were, and, and it was just the one of the saddest things I've ever right. I, I've ever seen really, um, but it would be sort of like us taking that and and because here I sit in a church in my office as a minister myself, um, it, it, for somebody to go like it terrifies me that somebody could just go now. Well, you know what those pastors are like, right. you know. Don't don't let that pastor take his your kid in his office, you know, for, for whatever reason, because you know what's going to happen. Um, again, the, the fact is that such a small percentage and those are anomalies still, even in the numbers that we have. Um, and yet still we're, we're jumping on something just like what you're talking about. It's, it would be so easy if, if, if the media or if people, if we wanted to drive something that way, because it's always easiest to combat something when you have a common enemy, whether you're fighting the right enemy or not, Um, I mean, it's it's kind of terrifying to think somebody could say, well, all pastors have that in their heart and let's let's get them, you know, and right. then next thing you know, it's a, a pitchfork and, and, you know, flaming torches scene and right. they're coming to get every pastor in the town. Yeah. Um, well, and to, you know, I have a, a good example of this, that you know, conversation that I had recently, and this is another one where I, I won't try to divulge too many details about who the person is because it 
it's not necessarily that it paints them in a negative light, but it, I don't, I don't think it was a very helpful conversation mm -hmm. when it comes to this topic. So I was talking with someone about, again, about the refugee issue and things that were going on. And, um, you know, largely, you know, first of all, we're, you know, we're largely aware of the refugee crisis right now because it, it has reached Europe, not mm -hmm. because it hasn't been happening for a right. while. You know, Syria in particular has been disintegrating since 2011. Um, just awful, awful things there for years and years and years. And actually our church, the Nazarene church has been really active working with refugees for years. And especially with this crisis as more and more Syrians are flooding out of there. And really since the beginning of the Arab spring, you know, people have been leaving many Arab countries um, because of persecution, because of war, because of a variety of things. And so we're seeing a lot of them, you know, our church is really active in, in the countries of Jordan and Lebanon and I think I shared, you know, I uh, forget the exact statistic, but Lebanon is a country of about 4 million people, and they have over a million refugees right now. So, you know, they're they're doing far more than um, than we are uh, as a country anyway. Um, so that this has been going on. The, the million is in addition to the 4 million. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, right. so you have a quarter of yeah. your country that's that many people. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so... Um, so you know, we're, I was talking with this person about all the refugee stuff going on, and, um, you know, she said, well, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine, and, and the, the story that she gave was, a, was this friend of hers used to work in, a, in another Arab country. Um, it's totally in a, not necessarily a completely different part of the world, but a totally different culture than Syria, completely different culture than Lebanon or Jordan or or Iraq or, you know, just a very different country culturally. Mm -hmm. And she said, this friend of mine used to work there 25 years ago because <laughs> not much change happens in 25 years. Um, <laughs> and when, and she had talked with this friend about her time there. And this friend had told her about what it was like to live there and what she was doing there. And Frankly, her job that she had there very specifically informed her experience of being in that country. You know, it, it very, mm -hmm. it very much would have shaped her perception of the population there, mm. particularly a majority Muslim population. Uh, and this person that I was talking to was sort of coming back at me with, "Well, they really, it the likelihood that all that many of them are dangerous is probably higher than you're admitting." Because my friend told me. That 25 years ago, when she worked in this other country, mm -hmm. this is how it was. Hmm. And I, I remember th thinking this is an instance where I, I could share every piece of data on Earth, but yeah. it wouldn't make a difference right now because this person has made up their mind about what they think and believe hmm. about this group of people, even though we're not even talking about the same types of people. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about the same culture. We're not even talking about the same language. Hmm. Um, and yet she has her opinion <laughs> formed from this anecdotal evidence. And I, you know, it's the, the, the really crass form of the joke is, you know, uh, well, I, you know, we can make excuses about racial stuff because, oh, I know a black guy that says whatever. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I, I can say um, such and such about this group because I have a, you know, this friend or whatever. And it, and it's like that, that one connection that I have with this story is all I need to make up my mind about right. this story without the need to actually go through and find out multiple stories and right. multiple avenues of information. And, um, I guess I, 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 I've never really been content with simple, easy answers. And so I'm, I'm naturally inclined to go after a lot of different avenues to yeah. figure out what I think anyway. But that was a, it was a really discouraging example of that it would, anecdotal it would, it would be a mistake to judge every creative white um artistic musician uh, by charles manson right <laughs> you know right would, that would be a sad thing for musicians everywhere well, and um, and even more you know we uh this may have come up later but something i was thinking about just a minute ago is you know if you wanted to say, you know, there's this really, I, I, I haven't really engaged this at all anywhere, but I, I'll take the time to engage it here now. Uh, earlier in the summer, or maybe in the fall, there was a, you know, again, Facebook sharing meme, you know, people started sharing this little one paragraph thing about reasons we essentially shouldn't 
allow Syrian refugees in. And the right. logic was, the metaphor was, what if someone handed you a bag of candy mm-hmm. and you knew that one of them was poisonous and would kill you? Like, would you take the bag of candy and would you eat from the bag of candy? Right. And <laughs> first off, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to judge it too harshly because I know this is not how people were thinking about it. And, and at the end of it, if you, if you even asked one question that, that it would break apart a little bit for him, but people are not candy. Mm-hmm. We don't, they're not, refugees are not here for us to consume as though their only value is what they can provide for us. Mm. And that that analogy really bothered me. Yeah. In in part because it was like terribly wrong and inaccurate, whatever. Right. But but in part because of that idea that that it was setting up this metaphor that allowed us to see them as something that that are only valuable to us if they can provide us with something. Right. So you you know you you can consume them or or whatever but so while that while that was being passed around and people were trying to make that case of if you knew one of them was dangerous would you allow them i came to the realization that um okay i'll give it to you um there are people out of the uh not just syrians but out of the 15 million displaced people in the world right now there are some who will be dangerous. There are some who will, at some point, um, commit a crime. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, uh, New Year's Eve in Cologne, Germany, there was a like a sort of a gang attack on a group of women, or I don't, I don't, I don't know all the details, or, but many of them were refugees. So I fully admit that n- all, not all of these people are going to be the nicest people always, and frankly, neither am I. But you know, I'll. I'll say that that possibility is there. But if we wanted to take the metaphor of if one is dangerous, you don't allow all of them in, let's take the highest proportion mm-hmm. of people who are dangerous then. and Like Americans? Uh, <laughs> yes, but even more so than that. Do you know with, with almost 99.999% certainty in the world who has committed crimes? I don't. Violent know. crimes. Violent crimes. Yeah. Men. Men. Okay. So if that's our rationale, that if we know out of this bag of 100 jelly beans that one of them is dangerous, shouldn't we just take all the men out? Right. If we know that it's actually most men who are going to commit crimes. So Herod was right in killing all the boys. Yes. So I I only bring that up because (laughs) it's an absurd idea, right, right. that we're going to say, well, let's— let's put all the men in internment yeah. camps instead of the Japanese because sure. we know it's the men actually who commit violent crimes. Yeah. We, no one would ever imagine doing that, but they will when it's someone that they can imagine as the other and mm-hmm. it's not going to affect them and, and that sort of thing. Well, and it's, uh, th- this is especially dangerous because, um, uh, <laughs> I hate that so many conversations turn to Hitler, uh, cause there were actually people in that same time that killed way more than Hitler did, right. but he's the easy, uh, the easy target. Right. But when you consider like the rise of, of the Nazis and how interlinked that was with Martin Luther's writings on what right. we should do with the problem of the problem of these Jewish people. Right. And I, I wrote about it in a chapter of my book because it so affected me. I couldn't believe it was just like step by step everything that we were seeing the Germans do. Martin Luther had laid out, and because it was a Christian country, and I'm saying that in air quotes, mm-hmm. um, that was part of the way that the message got out the, into the churches. This is our godly duty because Luther was so revered in Germany. So you immediately and and we 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 don't focus on the fact that Luther had gone crazy by that time when he wrote right. that and, and was, was literally haunted by things that weren't there, um, that, that were getting him, but yet the record was there. And so it was so easily justified. Um, and so you take a people group, which in that instance was the Jews, the Jews are the reason you're suffering. And you go to a people that were suffering terribly in Germany at that time, you show them, what the solution is to their problem is getting rid of this one source, which again, we're talking about the, the evidence of, you know, this mass media creates a panic. The right. anecdotal evidence take the place of hard scientific proof. The experts that the media trots out, they make comments that don't really have the credentials to be considered an expert, right. um, which, you know, we would say Martin Luther would fall into that category if they were using him as like, well, he said, you right. know, 
um, or the entire categories of, of people christened as innately dangerous, that's that's just an example. I only cite it because that just shows us how easily it can be done. Right. And I think we I think we can see that easily happening, you know, with just whatever mass way it happens, whether it's through social media or, you know, the the, the right people in a place together at a board meeting making the wrong choice because somebody got, I don't mean a church board, it could be a church board, right. but I mean it could be like a big company in a board meeting and right. somebody sways them all towards one position. Um, so we've, 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 we're talking about this conversation about fear and, and the way that that informs um, our story. Um, so how do we combat that? You know yeah. how do, how do we go against that? And and I want to a question that you asked the other day in class because you started talking about the refugee crisis and because you're in this position now where you're for our denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, you're dealing with what can we do to help these people who are in such desperate need right now because it seems like Americans are terrified of allowing them in because of what they're going to do, right. you know, of what they're going to take over. Which, by the way, that statistic you cited earlier, where was it? Where a thousand, I mean, there's four million people in the country. Where did you say it Lebanon. was? Lebanon. Lebanon. Yeah. I was trying to think of, my mind wrapped around that if every home in the country had four people in the home, that means they're going to have one person new come to live right. with them. Every right. home right. in the every entire home. country. That's how, yep. how, how big that is. Yep. <laughs> We aren't even talking those kind of statistics for the no, United not States. Close. Not even yeah. close to that, okay? Um, but the idea that they are being so generous to that, and we seem to be so the opposite. Yeah. I, I want to bring up something that maybe is ingrained in the back of our mind, and we're probably not thinking about it at all. But I can't help thinking about it because I just read a book over Thanksgiving about the plight of the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And it seems like we have an example of a group of people who were pretty open-armed to strangers that were coming in to their country, yeah. us. Suckers. You know? <laughs> so un- unless you have, you know, Native America in your in your history, in your ancestry, for some reason everybody claims they do. I don't right. know that any of us can prove that, a few of us do. Um, but that's a pretty good example of here here come the, the outsiders, the refugees, right. people looking for a place to right. call home the right. new world. They're welcomed in by a, a group, and this is, I think, an argument that's being used, too. Yeah. Uh, to some extent. Look what happened. Look what happened. They started killing the Native Americans. I mean, we started killing them while we wiped them. So if we let somebody else in, they're going to kill us. Yep. You know, they're going to take us out. Give us their diseases. They're going to give us the... And, and again, it starts over again. But the, the fact is, we wouldn't be here without the generosity of those people who allowed us in, right. despite what despicable moves we may have made right. <laughs> in the future that, that you know, that that's just taints our history um, terribly. But you asked a question, getting back to the question, you said, what can I what can I do? And you asked our question seriously about what can I do? to help change minds about this, or I can't yeah. remember how exactly you worded it, well, but you, you're finding that you're you're hitting up against opposition right. all the time of people making that argument, whether it's the <laughs> bag of candy argument or whatever. Right. Well, one of the reasons I asked the question is I'm just not, I'm not a fearful person. Um, I don't know that I ever really was, and I, I'm not, uh, you know, I've not gone to counseling to figure out why, but um, <laughs> I'm just, I've never been a, I've never been an anxious person and I've never been a fearful person. Now, I, I shared in class that one of the reasons I think that might be is that I, you know, when I was leaving college, uh, my undergraduate in, in 2001, we moved to Columbus and, you know, I started attending a, my wife and I were going to a church similar to ours where she was on staff, but I was also going to a house community church, um, house church community and, and sort of the urban area of Columbus near campus. And there was a very intentional um, emphasis on, uh, being in community with people. And that often meant being open to, you know, having open doors and unlocked doors and not not being concerned about your possessions. And so it was around that time that I started making really intentional decisions about the way that I lived my day-to-day life. And that included when I would go somewhere not locking my car doors. And and it was it was an act for me to sort of state... I don't care if someone, this car doesn't mean anything to me. And in fact, we bought, I just now remember this, we bought our 
in terms of things not meaning something we bought a, a jeep cherokee at the time which was still probably my favorite car that we've ever owned and uh you know the old boxy you know square kind of shaped ones and and i remember as soon as we bought it wasn't new but it had like twenty thousand miles on it and as soon as we bought it the first thing i did was drove it out into these woods and got it a little kind of scratched and dinged up because i wanted to make sure i never like cherished it as this new like beautiful thing um but I remember making intentionals, you know, I didn't want to lock my home doors all the time. I didn't want to, um, and I, I just remember it was a practice of making intentional decisions about not being afraid of those things happening. And I do think that having, that living intentionally that way for a while, making decisions to combat fear before the fear even sort of reached my door did contribute to my attitude now about being afraid of things. Um, when I, I, I went to Turkey, uh, the country in, um, in, uh, November, sorry, October to November of last year. And the, the first question almost out of anybody's mouth when I would tell them I'm going was, is it safe? Mm-hmm. And that question always bothers me, especially as a first question. Yeah because it it prioritizes that above everything else right not why are you going not um what are the people like not it's are you safe as though that's the the top priority is are you going to be safe um and i and the reality is that while i was there not if God called me. Then. Yeah. What, the reality <laughs> is that while i was there in this resort town on the mediterranean um where uh, where they held the G20 summit a week after I was there and the mm-hmm. president was there speaking. Um, <laughs> is it safe? Uh, <laughs> while I was in Turkey, there were mass shootings here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, that were reported on, you know, tens people killed, you know, 20, you know, 12 people killed and this whatever. It was, if I wanted to look at it in terms of a country, it was less safe here than it was there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you brought up earlier, you know, does God call us somewhere and does he ever call us somewhere safe? I think I've gotten to the place where nowhere is safe. Mm-hmm. I could get in my car leaving here and, and it would be over on the way home if, mm-hmm. if you know, bad luck hit. I could go to Turkey where I was and nothing happened. And there was a bombing there three days ago mm-hmm. in the square where I was standing and 12 people were killed. I, I don't know that there's anywhere safe. Mm-hmm. And so with that knowledge, you don't, this is what I was asking with help on. Mm-hmm. With that knowledge, you shouldn't become paralyzed by fear then, knowing that you can't go anywhere and be safe. Mm. So what is our response then? And the reason that I was, and I, I felt I, I felt like it was authentically a plea Sunday morning, mm. was that help me understand how to address this with people that don't feel safe, because I don't experience that. And mm-hmm. I know, for example, our friend that we talked about earlier, I'm not going to say it's just a simple decision to decide not to be afraid anymore. Yeah. It's not that simple. I recognize that. So I need help right. from people that do feel that to tell me this is how I could feel more safe. Or like you said in class, in the face of fear, how do I still go on and make decisions? You know, How does our friend go ahead and walk to mm-hmm. the store from the parking lot yeah. in the face of that fear? Like what, what do we need to do? And particularly with the refugee issue, I... I want our church to be engaged in it. I want I want us to be a people of hospitality. And if fear is overcoming that, what do we need to do to address that fear mm-hmm. or, or to overcome it? Even if the fear is still there, even if we can't erase it, how do we still, as a church, do what God calls us to do? Right. Well, yeah, lots of lots of good things to chew on. I, I'd say part of the answer is too is that we need to be courageous somehow and um if 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 it wasn't scary it wouldn't be courage for one thing (laughs) um but i picked up a book today and i only got to read a little bit of it and i maybe i'll close our conversation out because we're about to the end of the time i wanted to spend today talking about this but uh the book i found it on on a a cheapo rack actually but it's called red letter revolution and it's a conversation between shane claiborne and tony campolo and um, the book opens with the cry of my heart, um, and it just says, To all of us, young and old, who want a Christianity that looks like Jesus again. That's the dedication of the book. 
And there was one part that I was looking at that I, I thought was very interesting in light of what we're talking about. Uh, this is Shane Claiborne talking. Um, and he says, as Christians, we have a different way of hoping. Our hope does not rest in the markets or on Wall Street. Our hope is not America. No, we have found the light of the world and the true last best hope on earth, and it is Jesus. Interestingly enough, the early Christians were called atheists because they had lost their faith in Rome and put it in Christ. But that was misunderstood, and many were charged with treason. You dare not... Uh, you dare not lose faith in Caesar when he was the one who folks thought held the world together. All security rested in his armies, but not so with us. We have placed all faith and hope and all security in the hands of God. God doesn't need our guns to bring the kingdom. And I just thought that was a very well thought out, well written passage maybe to kind of close our conversation time out on. You, you look like you want to say something. No, I just, it. I agree. I, I agree too, and um, so if if anything, I guess it, it being that our hope needs to be misplaced, um, we're heading towards election times again, and we're again going to be duped into thinking that that's what the kingdom of God is somehow that the government here in America and somehow the presidential system, and we have false statements like vote your values like that can be done, um, and we have uh, just a lot that's going to be trying to vie for our attention and a lot of different stories trying to be told to us. Um, the story of hope and the hope that we find in Christ is the one that I hope that we will actually pay attention to and listen to in the midst of many, many other stories. Um, any, any closing thoughts? We need to have more conversations like this, but any other further thought? How can people, if they would like to maybe continue this dialogue with with you or someone that you work with, um, because I, I agree that your plea f was heartfelt, and there may even be someone listening to this that might say, you know, I'm struggling with these fears, or maybe I'm a part of a community that's struggling with these fears, and these are some things we're doing. Is, is there a way that you would like people to get in contact with you, or is yeah. something that... Well, I think, I mean, on the, on the topic of fear, I think that isolation from other stories and isolation from other people really breeds fear and allows it to fester and grow. And so I would, I would say, you know, if you're a person who's particularly fearful and, in, and especially about these issues or, or, you know, refugees or ISIS or Muslims or whoever it is that we're talking about, um, you know, reach out to those people that make you uncomfortable. You know, just before Christmas, I, I emailed the, the local imam here in Springfield and I said, Hey, this is what I'm working on. Can we get together? So we're, we're getting together soon, not because I see him as the enemy, but, but because I see him as a friend. Um, but you know, even if it's not reaching out to that person, you're afraid of reaching out to someone to say, I'm experiencing this. I so appreciated our friend, you know, saying in Sunday school class that she's really struggling with mm -hmm. this. And, you know, I, I hope that we can all be a support to her. She doesn't want to pass that on to her kids. Yeah, it's yeah. wonderful. Um, and I, on the issue of refugees, I would say, you know, if you, if you Googled Nazarene compassionate ministries, refugees, you would, you would go to the page where we, you know, we have lots of stories on there of the work that our church is doing. We, you have videos on there. We have places you could donate. We have, you know, all sorts of ways to get connected to the things that we're doing. Um, you know, I, I would say maybe as a closing, in case there are any specialists or experts out there, you know, there are 15 some million people out there that are displaced right now, you know, mm -hmm. from a variety of countries across the world. And, you know, I spent some time with Michael Murphy, who's the Catholic Social Services resettlement expert in Dayton. And, and he says less than 1% of that 15 million people are actually going to be officially resettled as refugees somewhere. Wow. Um, so the, you know, the U S accepts about 80,000 refugees a year right now that are officially resettled after an 18 month to three year process. Mm. Um, so out of those million people that are in Lebanon, most of them will not settle in Lebanon. Mm. Um, out of those million that have reached Germany this year, most of them will not permanently settle in Germany. They will not be, admitted asylum as refugees. And so not only is this an issue of of needing to support people as they don't have a home, it's likely that many of them won't ever be able to go home again, and they'll be in this halfway place where they're not officially a resident in this new country, and they can't go home. And 
there's a you know there are generations of people out there right now that may may not ever have the comfort that you and I are going to have when we walk out of this office to drive down the street and know that we belong in a place and so if if anything if if we can only move beyond fear just enough to be able to say we we need to be the people that are offering comfort to the vast majority of those who have fled from a place and have nowhere to go and may never have a place to go that that would be my encouragement is let's at least be have a ministry of presence and a ministry of comfort and support for those who um, will we'll grow up never knowing what it's like to have a place to call home. Hmm. All right. Good, good stuff. So Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, if you look it up online, you'll be able to find a lot of information there. Uh, and you can contact uh, some people about how you can help with this and continue the conversation. Um, you can contact me through my website at rickleyjames.com. Thank you for listening to Voices in My Head. And Brandon, thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.